Welcome to The Gathering Pod, the audio version of my weekly gathering room broadcast. I'm Martha Beck. And today's topic is the problem with overgiving. And in general, in the world, many, many stories are directed at the problem of not giving enough. So, for example, you have like a Christmas carol, a good Dickensian story about a rich man who thought that the poor um, should just die and decrease the surplus population, end quote. Um, and a lot of people are like that, selfish, uh, hoarding, mean, stingy. Thing is, I don't think anybody, anybody like that comes here. Just like there's no barrier except, I just don't think the vibe would work for people like that. I think I have a hunch that most of you out there listening to this right now are more prone to overgiving than undergiving. But because there's so much of a push towards selflessness that comes as a natural resistance to selfishness, we don't really learn the lessons of not overgiving. We're not told, be careful how you give because it can go too far. Just reminded me of something I heard about chimpanzees. They have different sounds for different foods they eat. And after a chimpanzee has eaten, I probably say this every week, it's so fascinating to me. By the way, look up hairless chimpanzee, terrifying. Anyway, chimpanzee is munching away on some grapes. Well, after the chimp has had a certain number of grapes, involuntarily that chimpanzee will start shouting the troop word for grape, whatever it is. Ah! I don't know. I don't know their word for grape, but the other chimps do. And then they come looking for grapes. So biologically, that chimpanzee is programmed to take a few grapes for himself and then to start involuntarily inviting others to come have some grapes. So it makes good evolutionary sense, right? That once that chimp has had enough for himself, the, the genetics of the tribe, the troop are going to survive longer if he gives some away. Or at least if he gives away the information that there are grapes and then other people can come take it from them. Him. So there's this need to survive as a group and it means that there's an impulse to announce that we have plenty and share with others. And it goes against that natural selfishness. And it's always a little bit um, problematic for people who are trying to be generous and loving and good and still have enough grapes for themselves. We get to this weird place where we're actually giving out more grapes than we are eating. I talked to a friend the other day who had a financial advisor come in and found out she'd been giving away like three times more money than she kept. And it would become a very serious problem if she kept doing it, right? Like but she's the most generous person in the world to a fault. A strength exaggerated becomes a weakness. So I've been contemplating the problem of overgiving. And let me tell you something, I have not figured it out. I just decided I'm going to talk about something that I have not figured out, not at all. I've never figured anything out, um, not completely. But this one, I'm like, I struggle with it constantly. So I've, I've really been thinking it through, been, um, I was going to say arguing about it with my family, but it's, it's more of a spirited discussion. <laughs> There's been no ill will, just a lot of eye rolling on other people's part. Like, really? Yeah, really. Okay, so here's the thing. 
when we give too much, we violate the old oxygen mask principle. And everybody's heard this. And I was shocked the first time I heard it on a plane. I was, I must have been, you know, in my teens. And they said, before you, you um, help others, you put on your own oxygen mask. And I was like, that's against everything I believe. I believe I should put oxygen masks on everyone in the plane before I put on my own. And it occurred to me within a few minutes that I would be dead and could not put on many people's oxygen masks if I didn't have one on. So we've all kind of heard the oxygen mask principle. I remember actually using that metaphor with people and having them go, oh, I never heard that before. Everybody's heard it now. So I want to go a little farther and tell you what happens to other people when you overgive to them. The first one is what I like to call a Malthusian horror. Those of you probably, I am sure you remember from Economics 101, studying James Malthus, an 18th century, or was it 17th century? I'm pretty sure it was 18th century economist who figured out that if you increase, like when hunter-gatherers were running about, they had a certain amount of food and they had to keep hunting and gathering to get the food resources replenished. Then they figured out farming. Now here was a way to, for the whole tribe, let's say there were 50 people in the tribe, they could just squat on some land, grow a bunch of crops, and have plenty, 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 and not have to go out hunting and gathering. The problem is that as soon as they did this, they had more children. Boom, boom, boom. In a hunter-gatherer society, the average woman only has a child every four years. And part of that is because there's something about the amount of insulin and stuff in the diet that it tells the body not to get pregnant again. Um, I don't know exactly the dynamics about it, but I do know that it's four years in a hunter-gatherer group. And then in an agrarian group, in a group that's growing its own food, it's like baby, 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 like once a year for 20 years. And what that does is make the population so big that you have to farm more and you have to farm more and you have to farm more and people start fighting over land. So it, Malthus said that the population will always grow to consume the amount given to it. And that's true for creatures in a population. Like I remember watching um, this, it, it was the crocodile hunter. He was on his show with his wife and they decided to go to this grain silo. I like mice, you guys, I really do. I think they're adorable. This grain silo had started out this massive, huge tons of grain, like bigger than a, it was like as big as, as a skyscraper. And I don't know how many mice started out in this grain silo, but I'm sure they didn't think they could possibly run out of food. By the time the crocodile hunter and his wife went to this grain silo, it was, it's kind of creepy. I love mice, but mice in this, at this level, no. What once had been a skyscraper full of grain was a skyscraper full of mice. And they opened, the way you were supposed to get grain out of the silo was to open a chute and then put your bags of grain and the grain would come out and fill the bags and take them away. Well, they did that. They opened the chute and all that came out was mice, like hundreds of millions of mice. And they're like, we got to let them out because they're out of food. This is the problem of overgiving. Everything expands to fill the allotted amount of, of nourishment, right? So if you give one person more than they need, often what will happen, if, you, if they're taking that and they take it for granted, they'll start spending 
commensurate with your willingness to give to them and they'll always push the limit of how much they you can help them you they're all they'll always be right at the verge of needing more money that's malthus so a second thing that happens and this is to individuals is that you create disability you create you infantilize and um and disable people i always used to tell when i train coaches i always tell them this story about a a, a joke about a rich woman who comes up in her limo and there's a they she asks for two butlers one to take her luggage and one to carry her 10 year old son the son is sitting in the back he's got bony skinny skeletal legs with no muscle in them and so the butler picks up the boy and they're going up in the elevator and the butler says to the woman ma'am it's such a pity your son can't walk and the woman says of course he can walk but thank god he'll never have to that is what happens when you over accommodate someone when my son was five adam um he was still you know he still wasn't potty trained he wasn't speaking in sentences he was you know he has down syndrome he was about he was operating at about a two and a half year old level when he was five a delightful human being in every way but I um, I went to a conference. I went to a lot of conferences speaking to parents of kids with disabilities. And at one of these conferences, someone accosted me while I was speaking and they said, um, can your son cook, cook meals for himself? And I was like, well, he's only five, um, but he can get like, he can get bread and a slice of cheese. And like he could do basic food assembly. And I said, he can't pour milk because we get these gallon jugs and um, he's, they're too heavy for his little arms. And somebody said to me, don't you realize you're, you're feeding his disability? Put it in smaller jugs. Put the milk in jugs that he can barely pour so that he has the chance to learn to pour milk. Because you could be in an airplane crash on the way home. He's not going to have you around forever. Don't ever do for him what he can do for himself. Otherwise, you are robbing him of abilities which was a real turnaround for me. It was like, wow. Um, I started to think about all the things that people do for each other that they could do for themselves and how, like in our family now, one person figures out how to work the remote on the TV. I'm not gonna use names here, but when, when the TV won't go on, everyone calls that person's name. I am the person who can make a certain kind of carb-free pudding from a mix. When we need pudding and I'm not there, it's all over. I gotta make the pudding. Someone else can make a delicious dish we call mouche, which requires meat and vegetables, mouched. But no one can make mouche except the one person. Otherwise, we just sit there like like larvae waiting to pupate. Hello, we need mouche. The TV won't go on. Where is the person who knows how to do this? <laughs> So that's what happens to people. You literally disable them. There's, if you ever read the comic strip Dilbert, it was about an ordinary office and there was one comic strip where a, a secretary, new secretary says to her boss, the boss comes in, he says, I'm going to make a copy. And she says, no, no, I'll do that. I'll do that. He's like, I need to reboot my computer. She says, no, 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 I'll do that. I need to sharpen a pencil. Oh, I'm on it, boss. And then he goes back into his office and she says, my campaign has begun. Soon he will be unable to perform even the most basic functions. <laughs> and um, yeah, 
is the Dilbert scenario. When you overhelp, that's what happens. And what happens to you is drainage, exhaustion. Not just the feeling that you can't physically give anymore, but a feeling that you shouldn't. Now, I was sort of tracing this because we all agreed after our long discussions on overhelping today, we all agreed that it's not, there is no way you can say universally, this is how much you give. Like I always, I grew up Mormon and um, there's a practice called tithing that many religions practice where you give 10% of your gross income um, for charity, to charity. I did that, I gave it to my church growing up and now ever since my whole life, I have just tithed, but to different organizations that I feel really deserve it. That feels super good to me. And sometimes I just love, love, oh, you can't imagine how much I love giving stuff to people. It's like, you know, the feeling of being Santa Claus and watching your kids and they don't even know that you were the one who scrimped and saved to buy them that thing. They think it was Santa and the joy of just seeing their joy, it's addictive. And I'm telling you, I mean addictive. I am seriously addicted to that feeling. But if you start giving too much, what happens is you start to feel drained and then you start to feel out of balance. And then you find yourself beginning to feel a little angry, or I do, I'll, I'll own this. And then I start to feel a little bit resentful. And if I keep giving and giving and increasing giving at that point, I get very resentful. That's because I'm out of balance. And the only way, the only generalizable rule I can say about this is that focus on what you feel. If giving feels joyful, you know, Eckhart Tolle says, if it's either um, deep acceptance, enjoyment, or enthusiasm, then go with it. But if it's not any of those three things, you probably shouldn't be doing it. So be very, very sensitive to your feelings when you're giving anything, attention, time, effort, money, food, anything. Um, and when you start to go over, tip over toward the too much giving, bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. How do you do that? Byron Katie, my favorite spiritual teacher, calls it getting in your own business. She says that there are three kinds of business in the world, yours, mine, and God's. So your business is how you get through the world. My business is how I get through the world. Um, whether it rains today, that's God's business. I can't really um, influence it much right now. So the way to go crazy is to get inside other people's business. So what I've always done is I overgive and then I start to try to argue in my head with the person about how they shouldn't expect that anymore. You know, and, that, and I want them to agree with me. It, my dogs at the table, for example. I have done so much in my life to avoid the disappointment of dogs. Because I, I gave them once, you know, I had a little salad left over after dinner. I put a little in each of their bowls. Well, that was two years ago. And now I give them each a little bit of vegetables in their bowls after dinner. And if I disappoint them, I cannot sleep. That's really dysfunctional, you guys. The disappointment of somebody else. The disappointment of the dog is the dog's business. The dog being well cared for is my business. I'm the dog's owner. Um, how I deal with my, not being able to sleep at night because the dogs were disappointed is, again, my business. And I need to serve my own instincts. I can only know for myself. I have a book. You know how I sometimes recommend books to you? I wanted to show you this book. <laughs> this book has been to war and back with me. Here you can see, oh, the light doesn't shine. You can see the tiny, tiny tooth marks from my youngest, um, older daughter. 
because she used this to teeth. I, I always had it with me. And so she would pick it up like this and she tore the covers off it and she would do ah, 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 when she was teething and it still has her little tooth marks. She now lives in London, by the way. She's not still teething. It has been a, around a while. So this book is called The Codependence Guide to the 12 Steps. And if you have a problem with overgiving, codependency literature is where it's happening, guys. It's all about admitting that you're powerless to supply other people's needs and getting back in your own business. Do I feel balanced? Do I feel secure? Do I feel in my integrity? And if you don't feel in your integrity when you're giving, you're probably overgiving. The solution for that is to stop being in someone else's business, thinking that you know what they need uh, because they have their own path through life and they need to learn to pour that jug of milk themselves or they'll be disabled. If you help a butterfly out of its cocoon, it will die. It needs to struggle in order to live. And the more it struggles, the longer it lives. So if you're, if you're overgiving, you're robbing other people of their abilities and you're going to drain yourself and everybody gets drained and the world kind of sucks. And if you pay attention to your own business, it will always pull you back before you go over that precipice of overgiving. So now I'm going to the questions, which Rowan Mangan, the bodacious badger yes elevated to bodaciousness hello the lovely peoples this is marty martha inviting you to a free masterclass that i have made called five paths to your purpose probably the most common question i get from people is how do i find my purpose why don't i feel that i'm on purpose well it turns out there are certain things you have to do to find your purpose, and I broke them down into five, and I made a little masterclass about it. So if you'd like to see it, just go to marthabeck.com purpose, and you will be able to watch it without any charge at all. Has been sending over. First one's from Kira. I'd love to hear you talk about overgiving and codependency and people-pleasing and how we can create emotional distance from people's reactions when we stop giving so much. Oh, yes. Read Melody Baby's Guide to the 12 Steps. Seriously, it is very helpful to talk to other people who are overgivers or people-pleasers when you find yourself confronted with the anger or the disappointment of somebody, like your dog, who expects something from you that you've decided not to give anymore. It can be really... Oh, they can punch your buttons. My friend who gives three times more than she keeps, uh, she and I were talking about how it's like seeing a bird with a broken wing, like the overwhelming anxiety of something else's pain and the desire to fix it. And it's really strong in those of us who have a fair degree of empathy. And if you are standing in front of somebody who is punching those buttons, like I'm in pain, you should give to me, and it doesn't feel right, it feels icky, It's your buttons are gonna be punched, so do what you can to get out of the situation and go find someone else who can help you not overgive. I don't think you can get out of this on your own. I think you need somebody else to grab. That's why I've been talking to my family members so much about this. You need somebody else to grab you and help you pull you out of that swamp um, because the psychology of overgiving is very insidious. And it looks like a virtue. And not giving will be, you'll be accused of, of stinginess. I mean, uh, God bless her. 
I do think I, I Oprah Winfrey is an incredible human being, but I think she used to be a bit of an overgiver, and I think that she would agree with me on that. And I'll never forget when she gave everybody in her audience a car. Remember that thing? And there was the whole audience had been vetted, and they were people who needed cars, and they were very deserving. And there was one couple where they both needed a car because they had multiple children to drive to things. So she gave each of these people a car, and they did a whole disinformation campaign on her for being so stingy that she did not pay the property tax on their cars every year. So she had saddled them with all this um, need and she wasn't supplying it. You know, it was, there you go. It's like people can be really, really awful when they're taking from an overgiver. It's like sharks. They smell you in the water and they come. So yeah, they're not going to be happy. And you need to be okay with them not being happy. And the only way I've found to be okay with it is to find people to grab onto who know that I'm overgiving and will help me get out of it. And I'm very grateful to all of you out there, and you know who you are, who have helped me in such situations because they are frequent. <laughs> I'm trying to learn. Okay, Laura says, yes, if I overdo, I'll start feeling resentful. That's how I know that I've overdone. I'll feel resentful and wonder why. Now, you can stop wondering why. It really helps to sit down and allow your most, um, your, your most disgraceful thoughts to come back up. Like, I am tired of doing this, you know, I'm tired of being the only one to make pudding in the family, or whatever it is. I actually love being the only one to make pudding. But if it got to be, here's another example with Adam. Um, he has two eggs scrambled every morning. And um, I used to make them for him. Now somebody else gets up earlier than I do. He gets up earlier. She makes them. So I was I would do this whole process where I'd get a bowl, I'd get a fork, I'd get the two eggs out, I'd get the pan out and get the butter out and mix the eggs, do this stuff. And I started to resent it because he was like 28. <laughs> and then like he can fully order software and and download it onto his his game and, and like program the game to do things. He, he could probably make some eggs. So I said to him, do you want to learn to make eggs yourself? And he said, and burn down the house? <laughs> yeah, and I thought, good point, solid point. So what I did was I said to him, now you have to get out the bowl and the fork and you have to put them right there. And then you have to get out a pan and I will get the eggs and I will do the cooking. And that became, and he had, at first he pushed back and I was like, no, no, you have to do this. After a few days, he started to be quite proud of his role in getting out the bowl and the fork. And it's been really, really lovely ever, ever since when I've made them, on the rare occasions I make them. The fact that he's doing part of it, there's no more resentment. So that's how I found my levels with that one. I really do think he'd probably burn down the house if he tried to run a gas stove on his own. But when he does what he can, and when I feel equilibrium again, zero resentment, joy in giving, reciprocity, then I know things are right. And if I started to feel resentful again, I would push up the level of things that I wanted back as reciprocal activity. So yeah, it's always this, um, this fine adjustment based on your own sense of equilibrium or, or rightness. So Anne Corrine says, I have a tendency to help people before they even know they need help. Cal, how can I stop that? Um, it's so funny because there's that, that Alcoholics Anonymous thing where you halt when you're hungry, angry, um, something or tired. 
what's the L for? Anyway, we should have another uh, a thing for codependence, which is halt when we're when we're feeling too empathic, when we're feeling, um, you know what it is? It's anxiety. When you start to feel anxiety, this is what happened to me. Uh, somebody asked me for money this week, and um, and I said no, and then I ran and gave a whole bunch of other people money. <laughs> to discharge the anxiety of having said no. And um, that is super dysfunctional and I don't think you should do it. But I caught, I knew that if I did, if I gave to the first person, I would be disabling them and creating resentment. And I didn't resent the money I gave to other people. They were just like, what, what is this, why? <laughs> and if I kept doing it, they would start to depend on it. It's like, oh, here's this source of income. Great, we'll do a Malthusian thing. But um, you have to get at the level of anxiety and you'll feel your anxiety rise. And some of us, and I, there are people in my family, not myself, who have this issue. When there's anxiety over anything, like climate change or whatever, they'll go give money to someone random which is, will not solve climate change, but defuses anxiety. So the act of giving creates that little dopamine hit and we go, oh, the world's okay. But we're gonna spend ourselves, we're gonna expend ourselves into a Malthusian horror, which is one of the reasons we're destroying the planet in the first place. It's an excess of um, taking and an excess of um, forcing the planet to give and give and give and not giving back in a sustainable way. So when you feel the anxiety and you feel like giving as a response to anxiety, calm down. Give as a response to overflowing joy and abundance and the, and the deep knowledge that you want to do it. Do not do it out of anxiety. You will overgive for sure. Nimet, hi Nimet, how are you doing? Nimet says, what if you're in the position of receiving more than you know is good for you? How do we accept just what we need? If someone's giving too much to us, how do we say enough knowing that so, that doing so will turn our lives upside down? Um, I've had a lot of people, like I used to see clients for free and forever. Like I'd be, sit down, we're gonna figure out your entire life. Um, and some of them were like, oh good. And some of them, the majority of them said, I'm not comfortable with that. I want to pay you. And I want you to put a time limit on this. It does not make me feel comfortable to over receive. And they had to actually push back. So I would say again, if you feel anxious, if you feel, because here's the other side of it. If somebody's giving, giving, giving to you, what you feel is that you owe them something in return. This is if you're not a psychopath. If you're a psychopath, you're just like, yay, keep giving. But if you're a normal person, there's something in psychology called the norm of reciprocity, which means that in every single relationship, there is an equilibrium point where both people feel that they're giving as much as they're taking and that it's mutually reinforcing. And if you're a normal person and someone's over giving to you, it makes you uncomfortable and it makes you feel under their control because that's what it is. Overgiving is a way to control other people. Don't get mad at me. Don't leave me. Don't hate me. Don't think I, you know, have more than I should. Think well of me. And so the person who's over receiving feels manipulated. Why? Because overgiving is manipulative. So if you're in a position of over receiving, um, be strong and brave and go start doing things that you would do if you didn't have that source of giving. And then you'll be able to, to turn to the person and say, I, I, I thank you. I love you. I don't need this. Please give it to somebody who does. 
and then they'll feel better. Okay, so I hate it when people overgive to me. Okay, so Donna says, how do you stop the giving when the giving seems tied to your own worth? I overgive because it helps me feel worthy, I think. Mm-hmm, yep, that's what you do. And you, tra you train people that the amount of giving and receiving you do is what establishes your worth. Think about a nursery in a hospital with a bunch of brand new babies in there. They, you know, show me the baby who's not worthy because that baby hasn't given enough. The baby is worthy because the baby exists. We all, and when we grow up, it's no different. We are worthy because we exist. We're worthy of our space on the planet. We're worthy of relating to people, experiencing things. If we tie it to how much we've given or received, we get off, we get out of balance. We start overgiving or undergiving, and we manipulate, manipulate, manipulate other people with it. So just keep, you've, you've articulated beautifully, Donna, and I know you have a brilliant mind, that giving should not be tied to your sense of worth, but it is. So untie it. <laughs> you know, get therapy, go to a 12-step group, um, call a friend who's codependent who can talk at you around and, and come to the gathering room. I'll keep telling you. Still have a couple of questions here at the end. Samita says, how do we foster this boundary with children? Overgiving, especially during this pandemic, has shifted so much of our truest boundaries. Ain't that the truth? You know, you can buy things from your children. You can buy their silence. You can buy their going into the other room if you just give them stuff, right? When you know that they may need a challenge or they may need... Um, they may need to work something out to struggle a little and and they'll say mom dad i need your help and your job is if you feel resentful don't do it um rose said to me the other day because we have our little baby now lila five months old she said it's going to be a real challenge to let her be bored enough to force her into creativity because she grew up an only child and she was often bored and became incredibly creative during those boring times. But before they, before the child will create for herself or himself, there's a, a point of struggle where they'll try to get you to do it for them. So especially if you've overgiven in the past, know by your own resentment that you are disabling your children if you do that. Uh, I remember watching this show that uh, it was about bears. This is when my kids were in their teens. And I'll never forget the narrator saying, the mother bear will not do for her cubs anything the cubs can do for themselves. And I was like, oh. And I was like, kids, <laughs> come here. And I just said, I'm not going to do for you anything you can't do, you can do for yourselves. And they were like, who the hell asked? <laughs> you know, they, they've always actually asked for less than I've wanted to give. So yeah, just notice the same rules apply. The same rules apply. It's just that your buttons are going to be easier to hit. And finally, Gwen says, Gwendolyn says, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Don't do anything when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. When you're feeling the desire, I would just say when you're anxious and you feel the desire to overgive and to ensure your place on the planet by pleasing other people, go be by yourself. Go inside, find the level of giving where there's no resentment and there's no guilt. There's, an e there's a perfect zone in there where you know you're giving enough and you know you're not giving too much. And I promise you, that is your gift to the world. That is the 
best thing you can give to anyone you love, to anyone you don't know, and to the world as a whole. So thank you all for giving your time and attention to The Gathering Room this week, and we'll be back same bat time next week. Uh, thanks for listening to me puzzle out my codependency in public. Yay! See you next week. Love you. Mwah, mwah, mwah. For almost 30 years, I've been teaching people to do something that I call reading your internal compasses. I believe we are all born with direction-finding mechanisms that are inherent in us and will help us find our best destiny. Uh, A few years ago, though, I realized that a lot of people were getting very, very anxious. And this is true. Anxiety is going nuts all over the planet. So I spent five years researching and writing a book about how to read your compasses and lower the anxiety that's getting between you and your right life. And I'm very excited about the book. It's coming out in 2025. But I would love to teach you about it before the book comes out. So this summer, I'm doing a course called The Wayfinder's Compass, Moving Beyond Anxiety. And you can check it out by going to marthabeck.com slash compass. And we will have a fabulous time putting you on course for your North Star. It's a bewildering moment to be alive. That's why Martha Beck, me, and Rowan Mangan, me, created Bewildered, the wildly successful podcast for people trying to figure it out. Most of us are trying to fit society's expectations about how we should live, which is stressful and confusing. On Bewildered, we look at topics like perfectionism, what it means to have enough, anxiety, and creativity to see where the culture may be pushing us all away from the lives that truly fulfill us. If you're bewildered, if you want to think and you love to laugh, come join us. 